This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with a very special first time, but a first of many times guest on our show, our colleague, Savannah Walsh. Hi, Savannah. Hi, Katie. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm great. I'm so happy to have you here and especially happy to have you talking to Tom Blythe, the star of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is the Hunger Games prequel that, as I was telling you before we started recording, I didn't necessarily have that high on my radar, but you and some of our other colleagues have been raving about it. And especially Tom's performance. He's not someone who I really knew that much about, but it kind of feels like a star is born kind of moment for him. And I wonder if you um, if you talk to him about how he's feeling about all this. Yeah, it was so great to talk to him. I was super excited by his performance. Uh, he is playing a young President Snow before he's the president, um, the character played by Donald Sutherland. And it was interesting because he kind of tried to avoid doing any Donald Sutherland-isms in his performance, um, which I think really spoke to the strength of it. It felt like a wholly new character, and yet by the end of it, you see how he becomes the sort of villainous looming figure that he is in the other films. Yeah, I mean, as someone, I think all of us in some ways grew up with versions of The Hunger Games. And, you know, it's a world that had so many other stories to tell. Does it feel like you're kind of experiencing something totally new? Does like, you know, he and Rachel Zegler are playing new ish characters, even though President Snow is someone we knew already. Does it feel fresh, maybe in the way that some of these franchise revivals haven't necessarily? Yeah, and it's interesting because I think part of why this film is successful is it manages to be fresh and introduces brand new characters, and yet it feels akin to the other films, which were of such high quality. And I think a lot of the other dystopian movies during this time uh, had a staleness to them because they weren't made with the level of quality that the Hunger Games films um, were. So having director Francis Lawrence back, um, I think, really helps bridge that gap, making it fresh, but also one with the original films, which were of such high quality. So do you feel like Tom Blythe is someone we're going to start seeing in a million different things? I mean, we all know that Jennifer Lawrence got launched as a superstar from this thing. Is this kind of the beginning of everything for for this guy? I think so. It's hard to imagine that he won't have tons of opportunities thrown his way. And during our conversation, he also talks about just the opportunities he sees in this becoming its own franchise, other stories that he wants to tell with the Snow character. So we just need Suzanne Collins to kind of get on that with the next book. Get it together. And then we can start <laughs> delving into it. 
Uh, well, especially now that the strike is over, uh, he can go back to work just like yes, everybody exactly. else. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, well, let's hear all about the movie and about Tom Blythe and your conversation with the star of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, Tom Blythe. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Tom. I know you've got a lot going on, so I appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. This is cool. Yeah, it's so wonderful to speak with you, I think, doubly, because you're the first actor that I've spoken to since the SAG-AFTRA deal. So congratulations on that. Um, What does it feel like to get to speak to the film and your work in it after some time of not being able to do that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I was kind of gutted um, in the lead up to promoting the film because it looked for a long time like we weren't going to be able to to be there with Francis Lawrence and Nina Jacobson, the, the producer and director. Um, so I was kind of fully envisioning being in my pajamas at home in Brooklyn, just kind of like feeling sorry for myself, drinking coffee and, and watching it all unfold over YouTube. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, we then got the the interim agreement at the very last minute, like a week before the press tour was due to start, and uh, which was obviously amazing. And we we kind of kicked into gear and and very excitedly got ready to go and promote the thing. Uh, and then halfway through the press tour, we uh, we finally came to the end of the SAG strike and we we reached a deal. So um, it was kind of, I think actually we got the news about the SAG strike ending uh, on like the morning of our world premiere. Wow. Which was like double good news. Uh, and I was, yeah, I think we all just had, had like a feeling of lightness and, and relief that not only do we get to promote this film, which we all we all feel really proud of and like really happy to, to bring to the fans and, and to hopefully create a new era of fans of this world. Um, but also like we all get to go and go back to our other jobs and, and take on new jobs after this. Uh, and also just get everyone back to work who, is, who has been on strike and, and the sister unions who have been supporting. So, yeah. Yeah, it's all very exciting. Um, it, it was so cool to get to see this film in theaters um, because I, I think we're in a similar age bracket. And like I did, or like you did, I feel like we kind of grew up with The Hunger Games at the height of its popularity. Um, what was your relationship with the originals going into this? Were you dressing up and going to midnight showings? Were you more removed from it? Um, what can you say about that? Yeah, I didn't ever dress up for this one. Uh, I definitely dressed up. I used to go like to Star Wars screenings and stuff dressed up and Harry Potter, I think I did. Um, but I was a big fan of the movies and I, I did go and see them every time they came out. Um, and I had a younger sister, so so we used to take, me and my mom used to take my sister to go and see them. So this was a pretty full circle moment, like having my family in the audience the other day at the world premiere in London and... Francis handed me a mic to kind of deliver the speech to welcome people to the screening. Uh, and I looked up and I saw my mom and my sister in the back row and getting to kind of like, kind of bring it specifically to them was, was a pretty cool moment. That is, it's interesting. Like when you learn of the prequel and the audition for this role, do you go back and revisit the films? Um, do you have like a favorite to go back to, or is it kind of trying to avoid them as much as possible when you're first approaching this character? It's funny, it's kind of like a catch-22 because you want to get immersed back into the world of it and back into the universe and just like the, the, the storytelling language that is, is in the original films. But at the same time, because I'm one of the few characters in this movie that is also in the other movies, you you want to be careful not to copy or try and recreate anything. And obviously Donald Sutherland is so good and so specific and memorable in those original films. Um, I definitely, I think Francis and I, Francis Lawrence and I both felt this risk or this trap that we could fall into of trying to like recreate some sort of Donald Sutherland like impersonation or something. Yeah. 
And so very early on, we talked about specifically not doing that and, and playing this kid as a kid and, and someone who is 64 years younger and someone who is very different than where he ends up in the original film and, and the subsequent films. Uh, so yeah, I, I kind of actually tried to avoid it. I did mark through the script kind of his progression to slowly becoming like future president snow uh and by the end that the, the, the film is basically split up into three chapters and each chapter is like a significant moment where he transitions from like boy to man and then man to to kind of future president and the last chapter i i when we started filming those scenes i did go back and start looking at some of Donald's scenes in the original films and also some of his scenes from films when he was younger, um, just to try and filter a little bit more of that into, into the performance, just to try and bring Corio like one step closer to the older version that he's about to become. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think some actors talk about like when they play a villainous character, you don't approach it like a villain. You kind of want to justify their decisions and um, not side against the character that you're playing. But you're in the film, we see your character sort of turn into that villain that we'll see in the later films. Um, so is there an exact moment that you kind of felt that shift the most? Yeah, I definitely felt that feeling of, of like, if I judge this guy, then I won't be able to play him fairly. Um and it's so easy to look at someone and go, like, yes, he's fictional. Yes, it's a fictional villain. But also we've seen him do some terrible things. And it's really easy to start judging the character for their actions. But when you're playing him, if you do that, like immediately, you're not going to be able to empathize with his choices. You're not going to be able to justify, like, the things that make him tick and the things that he wants. Um, and so I kind of had to, like, forget about all the stuff that he's going to go on to do in the later films. Uh, and basically, like, in my eyes, make him a hero or or at least make him empathetic to me um even if like he does stuff that i wouldn't do or makes choices that i wouldn't do like i definitely have to go through a process of of um making him the main character in my story uh in the same way that like you or i are the main character in our stories i had to make him the main character to myself you know and to do that you have to like justify what he needs and wants um so yeah but in terms of your question about like the moments where he changes um, I think there's definitely a few distinct moments. I mean, the first one is like meeting Lucy Gray, where she kind of tests everything that he thinks he knows about the the, the Pan Am and the districts and uh, and what people from those places are to each other. And Lucy Gray kind of tests his expectation because he thinks they're all barbarians and uneducated, and and he's been taught and told by the capital that they're all lesser than himself and then he meets this person who is like enigmatic and magical and uh a performer and and witty and can she can she can outsmart him on like any day of the week and he's enamored by her and i think that is uh it wakes him up to the fact that actually like they're all human and they're all just trying to get by in the same way no matter where they are um but there's one moment where lucy she has some food with him and she says i thought there was plenty of food in the capital and and that's the first moment where i think he lets his guard down and he, he says to her, like, yeah, you would think so, but tell that to my grandma, you know, because mm. she's, she's starving too. Um, and there's a moment of, like, humanity between them where they both realize that what they thought the other person represented might not actually be true. Um, mm. But in that vulnerability also comes him, like, discovering his own weakness, and he's terrified of weakness. And so I think that's one of the first moments where he starts to become afraid of, like, letting the facade drop. Mm. 
It's interesting because I've seen some people sort of draw parallels between Snow and some of our more modern figures. Snow, you know, inflates his personal wealth. He has this talent for producing reality TV. He's going to become yeah. the president. It's not hard <laughs> to sort of draw that conclusion. Yeah. Oh, I wonder um, who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Um, yeah. How much did that bear on you, the sort of modern parallels that we have to some of the leaders and regimes that have happened um, in the present? Yeah, I mean, like, the fact is we all have, like, this morbid fascination with those people, you know, because they are so, like, sad, like, I guess, thankfully, in some ways, like, once in a generation, those people come along who we're all like, what? Like, how are they getting away with saying this stuff? How are they getting away with, like, these, like, outright lies? And I will say what Snow is in, in the story is a liar. Like, he, he actually doesn't lie. He is someone who, um, he, he, he tricks and he, he, like, he is willing to, like, go to lengths to make sure his his mentee wins the games, right? Mm. Like he's not he's not so honorable when he's younger that he's like not willing to cheat. Um but he's not a liar. Like he does tell the truth. And even in the later films, I think like if you ask that character, he would say he was telling the truth. Like like Donald Sutherland when he portrays Snow, I think he's kind of telling the truth. But his truth is is just like darker than most and his truth is like way more cynical, way less hopeful. It doesn't believe in the kindness of humans. He believes that the humans are like barbaric and they have to be controlled. Um, mm. but that he is telling the truth. Whereas like the people I think you're alluding to in like modern times now, um, I think we live in a time where like lying is is like so normal for people in power. Mm. It's just like so normalized and people can say what they want just to get to whatever end they're aiming for um and i don't think that is snow i think that is not even necessarily the question that suzanne collins the writer is is asking um i think if anything she's asking more one of like what is the true nature of humans like are they inherently chaotic and and bad and and like dangerous to each other or are they inherently good and loving and like the danger and the and the kind of evil that can creep in is more like uh, product of circumstance um but yeah i think you can't help but draw parallels because i think the thing that really connects them all is like a, a desire for power right like mm-hmm. probably then a snow in, in this like fictional world but then also all these like modern day leaders and historic leaders too um whether that's putin or trump or like stalin or like even you know mussolini or hitler like these people were just so hungry for power and it came from most likely a fear of like not being in control. Um, Mm. And I think that is a big kind of question in the movie as well. The Run Through with Vogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, We should be the mayor of New York. We all support that. We support that. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Nikki, yes, it's been really great Chill being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run-Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOC. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
And in humanizing someone who will eventually become a character akin to the people that you just mentioned, um, in your conversations with Francis Lawrence, who directed three of the original films um, and is back, and author Suzanne Collins, what were your like most important questions that you wanted answered in your conversations with them about this character and his trajectory? Yeah, I mean, Francis and I talked about how we couldn't kind of get too far ahead of ourselves. Uh, kind of what I mentioned earlier, which is like, if you start judging him too soon, then there's like no story to tell. Mm. Um, and also this question that I think Suzanne Collins is asking, which is like, is anyone born bad? You know, like, can you be born bad? Can you be born as a future dictator or do you become it over time because of things you go through and, and the way that you decide to look at the world? Um, and with Corio playing him, like Francis and I, basically like we have to humanize this kid like and, and in the book he's humanized it's like you see really his humanity through the people who still love him at that point which is tigress played by hunter schaefer and his grandmom played by fianula flanagan um and they're both like amazing actors who like you love to love and, and love to watch relate to choreo um and even his classmates who look up to him and, and and admire him because he's kind of the best in the class and you get to see all the things about him that like could go so right um, and, and then you get to root for him too, because you see these characters rooting for him and you see like everything that he could be if he, if he took the the kind of like honorable path, you, uh, you get to see him, uh, kind of like his potential, I guess. And like, hopefully mm -hmm. the audience gets to fall in love with the potential and then kind of be devastated when, when he may or may not like live up to that potential, um, mm -hmm. as a human being. Uh, so yeah, I think it was mo mostly a, an exercise in like trying to create a human who people or character who is human enough and like full enough that people can see both the positive and the negative in him and like hope that even though they know where he's going to end up still spend two plus hours like rooting for him to do the right thing mm. um and actually like in a way it's an exercise in like forgetting where he's going to end up and just like being with him in the now yeah um, and so much of the reasons why we're rooting for him are, are in the scenes that you share with Rachel Ziegler, who plays Lucy Gray. Um, what was it like building this complicated dynamic that your characters have? Because um, it's romantic, it's adversarial, there's a mentorship there. Um, there's a lot of layers to every scene that you guys have. So how did you build that relationship? You guys met virtually, right? You didn't meet in person? Yeah, so before the movie started filming... I had been kind of cast basically, and I was going through chemistry reads with potential Lucy Grays. Um, and what I didn't know at the time was that Rachel had, had already been like the first pick for Lucy Gray and had kind of turned it down because she was, she'd been working back to back on a bunch of projects and was in London and hadn't seen her family in like a year. Um, and hadn't seen a boyfriend in like a year. So she was just like desperate to go home and get some home time. So, so she would like, Francis had kind of like hoped that she would take the part and then, and then kind of was devastated when, when he thought she wasn't going to make it. Um, and then, uh, she kind of came back into the mix at the end of my audition process and we got to then read together um, and we just like instantly felt that there was some magic there um, the minute she started singing in the scene all the noise was quietened and like I, I don't know if you've heard her sing but like it, yeah. is, it is just like it is like she's been touched by something angelic you know like mm -hmm. it, I remember hearing it and being like what like she sat at a kitchen table in London and I'm at my kitchen table in Brooklyn and I was like, how can someone be sitting at a kitchen table in London, exhausted from like working on this film that she's doing and still just sit there and like pitch perfectly, like make the world go silent. It was amazing. Um, and I imme immediately knew that like, I was like, it's going to be really easy for me to like fall for her on screen as Corio mm. falls for Lucy Gray. Um, and it was, yeah, it was kind of a magical moment. And then 
the next day, pretty much, I, I heard that we were going to be doing it. And then Rachel and I started kind of texting and like sending voice notes to each other and just like talking about the characters and about our lives and um, trying to connect. And then we met in person for the first time in Poland when uh, Josh and I had already been filming for like uh, maybe two weeks and we were the first ones there. And then she came and joined um, and I met her at like midnight when she got off the flight and, and we kind of like gave each other a hug and then she was like straight into work the next day. Um, oh. And then I got I got COVID immediately after that um, No, <laughs> in Poland. So then I like, so we met, she started filming and then I was like out for 10 days, oh. um, like sadly feeling sorry for myself in my hotel room in Poland. But like she would update me every day and tell me how the day had gone and I was getting like feedback from her and Francis about how well it was going and then I luckily got to join 10 days later and see it in action um and yeah was, we, we, we became really good good friends because it was just it was a pretty hard shoot it was just like a, a long shoot that was like pretty physically and, and mentally strenuous and really fun but like mm -hmm. just just because of the nature of the of the film um and the nature of Corey Lennis and his kind of like <laughs> slip into darkness it was just like a pretty arduous shoot so it was good to have like a partner in crime there like to lean on yeah, I'm curious about that because, you know, people obviously know of you. You were the lead role in Billy the Kid from The Gilded Age, but this is a totally new undertaking, um, being the lead of a major franchise like this, I imagine. And that's without the COVID constraints and everything else that you were dealing with during this time. How did you kind of stay mentally sound? How did you take care of yourself and, and not feel overwhelmed by the machine that is kind of circling around you? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think there's more than anything a credit or a testament to Francis um, and his direction. I, I definitely went into this thinking I'm going into this massive machine that is going to like consume me or like eat me up and spit me out. Uh, and the fans are going to like hate me online and they're going to get like bashed. Like, and I'm not, not going to think I'm the right person for the job and all this stuff. And, and Francis will, won't be like accessible as a director because he'll be too busy with the machinery of it all. Um, and it like, totally has been the opposite experience i found that like the fans immediately from start to finish were super welcoming and supportive and excited to like shepherd in this kind of like new um chapter uh and then francis and nina and the team who have returned to to make this new one who were all on the last ones um they like it, it couldn't have felt more just like making a film together you know it didn't feel like being part of like this this machine at all that i thought it was going to feel like um it felt like making like a beautiful indie movie together that just happens to already have a built-in fan base um wow. which is kind of like dream like a dream as a filmmaker because you are like you know there's a there's a hunger for it already pardon the, the pun but like you know there's like a there's like a, a thirst for it like people want yeah. want to see the story already um and on top of that then then you're getting to tell a story that feels meaningful and it feels like not just another like big blockbuster kind of I know this word gets banded around with these kind of things, but it really did feel like a family for like five or six months uh, and still does like being reunited on the, on the press tour has been really pretty magical. Mm. But until, I think you asked, you actually asked about self-care, right? That was kind of what you were specifically right. asking about. Um, I try and get as much sleep as I can, which is easier said than done. I try and work out, which for this was tricky because he's supposed to be really malnourished and skinny. So, um, so the working out was really like I was working with a trainer and a nutritionist just to like keep as much weight off as possible, mm. um, which is then tricky because halfway through the film he then puts on a bit more weight and becomes a bit more uh, like I think in the book it says he becomes more of a man um, and like adds weight when he joins the military and and uh, so I had to kind of do a two part transformation that was like losing a lot of weight and then trying to put it back on as fast as possible. 
Um, so yeah, just another thing always, to add. <laughs> just another thing to add to like the yeah the, the psychosis of playing the snow character. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Well, I'm curious. Did you get the opportunity to speak with Donald Sutherland at all, or get any advice from any of the original cast? We didn't. Um, we actually, I don't think any of us spoke to the original cast, and I think that was kind of by design um, from Francis. I think he wanted this to feel like we weren't kind of like picking up a ba- like a baton that had been dropped in the relay mm. race. You know, I think he wanted it to actually be this is a chapter that is set sixty four years before, like before any Katniss, before. Corey Leonard Snow is is a president uh, or a leader. Um, before any of that, it's like they're still the only two characters that cross over are Tigress and, and Corio. Um, mm. And the rest are, even if they have the same names or like are ancestral relations of some of the characters in the original films, um, there's no other crossovers. So yeah, we didn't, we didn't have any contact um, up until... There was one point where I think we all got the news that uh, that Jen Lawrence had been interviewed on the red carpet somewhere about about how she felt about it, and she kind of put she sent a message to us like via uh, a media outlet, basically just saying like good luck to everyone. Um, we hope it goes well, um, mm. which I think we all we all, we all needed because halfway through we were kind of like oh god, I hope we're living up to the hopes and dreams of people who love this franchise, and I hope we're not like shooting, <laughs> you know. Jen in the back, <laughs> like, right, uh, right, but right. to get her kind of blessing, I think meant a lot to us, even though it was kind of from afar. Yeah. Um, but Donald, I hadn't spoken to, and still haven't. Um, and again, that was kind of by design, just to kind of um, not in any way try to imitate him, because uh, I think I would have, I think had I met him, I would have tried to do an imitation of him, hmm. um, and that would have been like not fun for anyone. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I, I hope now have- that I get to things that you want to that you would want to ask him now that you guys have both played the same character yeah now now that i have now that it's in the can so to speak and now that it's out there in the world um or soon to be i i guess i would want to ask him um probably similar questions to what you're you're curious about uh with me which is just like how did he find playing someone who was so tyrannical and and and, Hmm. uh and, and what inspiration did he draw on i'd be interested to see if we had similar inspiration but I think also his answer would probably be like mine, which is it's like really all in the books. Like the, what Suzanne writes, it's it's really rich, and and you can uh, you can kind of get what you need from the book as like a bible, like a character bible. Hmm. Was there a particular moment in the book that you kind of like hung your hat on as like uh, really informative to you um, and who the character is? Yeah, there's a few actually, but I think um, the first. Have you have you had a chance to read the book by I any have, chance? Yes, you have. Oh, cool, nice. Okay, good. So I'm speaking to someone who knows. Uh, so there's the there's the first um, chapter, which is basically all about him and Tigers trying to put together a, sh- a shirt for the Reaping Day ceremony, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and it's also his like graduation shirt. So and they don't have much money, and they they don't have clothes. But Tigress is obviously like a fashion genius, just like Hunter Schaefer is. Um, and that paragraph is like dedicated to his kind of like the care he takes in his own um like uh how he's perceived by the world and like his own appearance um and kind of his vanity and mm. that to me like stuck out like a sore thumb of like a big giveaway of his personality and what he values in the world because despite the fact that the family has no money they've fallen from grace they can't afford to pay their rent there's like you know bills piling up on the table he still wants the outside world to think that he's got money and power. Um, and the way he's going to do that is by making sure he's put together, looks the part, his hair is like quaffed and, mm-hmm. and you know, he's, 
he's moisturized he's you know he's like yeah. looking after himself <laughs> um and and it's all like part of this like facade this like wall that he builds up to protect himself from from the chaos of the world um and that was a massive thing for me um kind of marking the transformation and, and especially in chapter three when he when he ends up in district 12 um and all that is stripped away and, and he kind of changes as a person it kind of like it kind of like crumples him up and spits him out and he's he's forced to like reevaluate and uh and then when he eventually comes back to the capital he's he carries that all with him and he's just kind of a hardened person and mm. he regains that vanity and that that kind of like protective mechanism but now it's like underpinned and like cemented by this like hardness that he learned in the districts absolutely um I, I want to ask, as we wrap up, you get to share the screen with some incredible people in this film, Peter Dinklage, Jason Schwartzman, and Viola Davis, who seems to be having, like, the time of her life in her scenes. <laughs> yeah. um, it was so fun to watch. Uh, what was it like to share the screen? I mean, those are some towering presence. Like, how, how is it to act opposite them? Yeah, I was super intimidated at first, uh, like, just knowing that I think the minute Viola was cast, I was like, are you kidding me? This is like, this is, uh, yeah, immediately I was like, am I worthy? You know, like, uh, do I get to really do this with her? Um, but they couldn't have been more welcoming and more, um, supportive. It was cool. Like, I think the first of the three kind of like OG legendary actors that, that are on the, on the screen with us that I worked with was, um, Jason and Jason came in on his first day and it was in the makeup trailer and we were sat like at each other's backs and he was super excited and I, I couldn't work out why. And then he like, he, he was basically like, how cool do we get to be here, man? How cool? Like it was his first job. And that just speaks <laughs> like, that is what he's like. He's just like a guy who's like yeah. truly so thankful that we get to like play for a living and get to like tell stories. And it, it was cool. It was great to like be reminded of that um, kind of halfway through filming. Cause like halfway through the a five and a half month shoot, you get pretty tired and you kind of start to take it for granted a little bit. And he came in and injected the whole, the whole cast and crew with this, this just like childlike appreciation for what we get to do. Um, and it definitely like refreshed us and kind of started us off again on the right foot. And then I found out that he'd like watched all of the, all of season one of my show, Billy the Kid and, and was a fan of Billy the Kid, which was crazy to me. Cause I was like, I didn't. I didn't think he had any idea who I was, um, and like, nor should he. And and there he was, just like asking me, like, what what happens next? Like, when's the next season out? And I was like, what, dude? I was like, <laughs> I was like, I, I'm supposed to be asking you these questions. Like, like I've been watching you on TV and movies since I was a kid. Like, you know, like, uh, yeah. Um, that was that was pretty cool. That was a cool moment. And uh, and then the same with Fiola and Peter. Like, Peter became kind of a good friend over the over the course of the shoot and gave me a lot of advice. And Fiola kind of just led by example and is such a professional and just so good and she's having fun with it like i yeah. think i expected her to be super serious but she's coming in and she's playing and i was like oh that's what it is it's like she's, she's just playing a part but playing it really well and really truthfully um and then at the end of the day she's like well that was fun cool i'm gonna have a margarita you know it's <laughs> yeah, like totally. that's who she is and i was like oh that's why she's so good because she like she's not lost the value of like what it is that we get to do which is just like play mm. And how do you wrap up this experience? Are you are you going home and drinking a margarita? Like, what's your <laughs> what's your process for kind of shutting the character and saying goodbye to it in a way? Yeah, during shooting, there's not so many margaritas just because I have to keep my energy <laughs> up. But uh, I'm sure tonight at the premiere we'll probably have a few margaritas. Uh, I we we've I think on this press tour we've like really it's been cathartic. It's really felt like a kind of like homecoming because um, I think we all didn't expect to get to do it, um, and we all. We've, we've, I don't know. We've, we've, we've like 
we all have dinners. We have a lot of dinners. We um, Francis is kind of a foodie and and a wine connoisseur, and so like we'll all come together tonight and have a dinner and uh, and kind of yeah reminisce over like the past year and a half of making this film. Um, and I think also just looking ahead, you know, like mm. it's exciting to see what's next. And um, also I feel very, very grateful for, for the doors that this has opened, this opportunity. Um, it's kind of great to be able to make something that is so big and like uh, kind of beloved by, by a lot of fans of the franchise, but also be really proud of it. Um, mm. And then on top of that, feel like it's uh, it's kind of opened up a world of opportunity for me in terms of like parts that I get to play, uh, hopefully in the next few years. Absolutely. Um, and then I would be remiss if I didn't ask before we finish up. Um, people will, ne- will inevitably wonder if there will be more films told in this timeline. Um, if Suzanne were to write something tomorrow, which what chapter of Snow's life would you be most interested in exploring? Yeah. I, so I was um, Hunter and I had dinner last night and we were with a few others and we were talking about it. And uh we both feel pretty strongly that Tigris and Hunter's, uh, Tigris and, and Snow's relationship are like, like I think we want to see that. I think mm. fans of the books want to see that. I, I really, I, I do want to see what happens to, to Lucy Gray because the, the end of the book is left so ambiguous and you just yeah. don't know where she, where she ends up. Um, literally and metaphorically like where she ends up um so I, I think there's like two stories that I really want to heard want to hear told um which is where the hell does Lucy Gray go and what does she do and what happens between Tigris and Corio because the end of the film definitely feels like there's like they're on the precipice of of like the great falling out that then leads to like obviously Tigris helping the rebellion against him later in Mocking mm-hmm. J part two. Um, so I would love to see that story. And I just think Hunter is so good. Like she's just so good. I love working with her and I love watching her. And I hope that Tigris's story gets, gets fleshed out a little bit more. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. So now I'm going to share the conversation that I had with Peter Sarsgaard, the star of Memory, the winner of the Best Actor Award at the Venice Film Festival. The SAG strike is over, but Peter has been able to promote Memory because of an interim agreement. It now has a distributor. It did not have one when he won that really prestigious prize at Venice. Um, And it's exactly the kind of uh, tiny, beautiful film that people really deserve to be able to talk about, even while the strike was ongoing. He stars as a man with early onset dementia who strikes up a really complicated but also really lovely relationship with a woman played by Jessica Chastain. And I talked to him about how he had sort of known Jessica socially for a long time, and she had recommended him for the role, but didn't tell him until they were at Venice and and he went and won that award and kind of what that said about their collaboration on the film and just kind of a really wide ranging conversation about what he looks for in movies, like how he works so often, but kind of finds something in everything that he does, how the industry has changed a lot since his big breakout role in Boys Don't Cry over 25 years ago. Um, He actually can say the titles of his old movies now, uh, now that the strike is over, which is one really uh, funny result of that. 
It was a really lovely conversation. He's really thoughtful about his work and about the industry and art in general. Um, so I had a great time talking to him, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. You can hear my conversation with the star of memory, Peter Sarsgaard. Well, Peter Sarsgaard, thank you so much for joining me on a really auspicious day. We're talking hours into the end of the SAG strike, which is in- incredible. Like, I didn't think that we'd be here at this point. I know. How, do, how do you feel? Um, I feel fantastic. It seems like <laughs> we got a lot of what we asked for. So yeah. I don't. I haven't like looked into the nitty gritty yet, but so far so good. Well, you you were talking to my colleague David Canfield earlier around Toronto, and he had talked about the look you were doing into AI specifically on your own. And like, I don't know to what extent you were in touch with the negotiating committee, but that seemed to have really grabbed your attention as part of the negotiation. So what did you learn there? Um, Just the ways in which, you know, one of the fundamental things that we were disagreeing on was that an actor is a person. (laughs) Um, And I, I thought about it quite a bit because I thought like, you know, these are people that are trying to sell a certain thing and we're telling them, uh, I think we're telling them this will also be good for you, right? Mm-hmm. To have real people versus computers yeah. playing parts. And, um, and then I started to think about the current state of the industry where it seems like they've been making movies that didn't have much humanity in them. Mm-hmm. that asked for acting to be quite controlled and predictable mm-hmm. in terms of behavior to certain things. And I started thinking, oh, they're like trying to pull the product toward AI as AI goes toward the the product, you mm-hmm. know? So it's like they're taking, <laughs> AI is not going to have to make a massive leap to be able to do any of that. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is important for us as artists and certainly the actors who have power is to really push the agenda of humanity in the work that we choose and promote. Because when you started in your career in the 90s, you know, I think when Boys Don't Cry gets made, like it feels like a really risky, anomalous movie. And now it feels kind of like a miracle, like the way that the industry has changed since then. And I wonder if back then you were like, oh, they don't ex- like respect humanity in movies anymore. And it's just gotten so much worse since then. Or is it not as dramatic? Well, I mean, that movie, the people that were in that movie would never find it. I mean, <laughs> it was like... Hillary had been, you know, I I don't know the extent of her resume up until then, but certainly not um, the actor to finance the movie sort of thing that they do now. Yeah. And certainly not Chloe. Chloe had been in Kids and maybe Trees Lounge or something. Yeah. And certainly not me. (laughs) So, um, no, I, I miss that time in movies, actually, where you could show up and really not know much about some of the actors. Hmm. And I say that as an actor who now, fair number of people who see me in something know other things that I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, I love seeing new people, and I really gravitate toward that. I hear about something where I don't recognize the people in the movie, I'm definitely going to show up. Is that explain your choices as an actor, too, or is that mostly as an audience that you look for that surprise? No, I'm looking for, like I said, humanity most of the time. If it isn't a piece of art, which would be the greatest thing, right? Like I, my dream is to like only do things that are like little gems, mm-hmm. right? We all want that. We all want like to be so proud of the singularity of everything we do. Well, if in lieu of that, because that doesn't happen very often, <laughs> um, there's also the idea that this specific issue or idea 
needs to be put out in the world. Oh, and this is a reasonably large size forum to get it out there. Yeah. And I've done a, a lot of things that fit into that category. And then occasionally I've done things that were neither and it wasn't very much fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like that leads pretty nicely to memory, the you know, the film that you've been able to talk about because it had a, a interim agreement from SAG now, all bets are off. Um, but a gem of a movie with a message that needs to get out there feels like it really describes that movie really nicely. Um, but you make a lot of movies and it, it's you know, a lot of things come your way. So how do you know something like memory is gonna be a gem when you decide if you want to be part of it? One hundred percent I knew. My the only thing I was trying to do is just make sure I had the job. Mm-hmm. So I like I read it. I was familiar with Michelle's film after Lucia. Mm-hmm. And um, then I went and watched all of his other movies before my meeting with him. I didn't realize that Jessica had actually recommended me for the role. I actually didn't hear that until at Venice. They said that during an interview. Wow. Um, she never told you? No, I think that's very respectful that no one would mm. tell you it. It changes the power dynamic in some way, right? To have been chosen by the other actor. But if you do that as graciously and beautifully as she did, Mm -hmm. um, you leave no trace, (laughs) (laughs) right? It just happened. What was your relationship with her before she recommended you for this role? I didn't know her very well. I mean, um, my wife and Jessica know each other and have always really gotten along and done that Mm -hmm. old thing of like, one day we'll get together and I'll have dinner and, you know. Sure, sure. Um, but we're, when you have children, that never pans out. Yep. Um, and then we had seen her movie where she played Tammy Faye, Isaac Tammy Faye. Of course. And we saw it very early. I think I saw one of the first public screenings that Jessica went to. And I, I guess it was a premiere in New York. And pretty low key. And we were just like, I said, that was very good acting. Mm. Um, in a kind of acting that I don't feel like I've had the opportunity or maybe even ability hmm. to do. It's a different what kind type of acting. Of thing. Yeah, what does that mean? Well, because what she's doing is something where she's like completely taken care of the inside of the person, mm-hmm. right? And completely done this transformation on the outside. I mean the that's kind of complete transformation where if you ran into Jessica playing Tammy Faye, you would probably not know it was Jessica. Mm-hmm. And it's believable. See, you know, usually someone does that and you're like, yeah, it's believable and within the context of a movie. Yeah. I yeah, thought yeah. that it was just 100% believable, having grown up with Tammy Faye on my TV all the time. Mm-hmm. So we were very moved and loved her in it and told her and you know, of course, I told her right when she was signing autographs outside after the movie, because I don't know if you know this about Jessica, but she spends like an hour with the fans before. Oh, my God. And like, and sometimes an hour afterwards, she really, really wants to thank them for supporting her. And she is yeah. very, she recommends we all do it. So you were being a fan in that moment, really. You're like part of the I autograph I was being a total pack. fan with my wife. <laughs> yeah. So, Yeah. When I heard that she was attached to it, I thought, oh, that's great. You know, she's awesome. But the thing that really drew me to the movie was sort of the way of working, this idea that Mm -hmm. we would have so much power as actors. Normally, movies are edited to within an inch of their lives. And the performance of mine that's in the movie, I 
might think is fine or might be even good or maybe even better than what I thought, but it's not always what I thought. Mm -hmm. And this movie, everything in the movie is that has to do with me is directly from me. I never feel betrayed by the cut. How do you do you know going into it that that was how it was going to be? Is that the conversations with the director? Because he shoots one take wonders. You know, I he's see. Like, you know, he sets up the camera. You do the rehearsal. Mm-hmm. I could just tell by watching his movies. You do the rehearsal. And uh, sometimes we spend a lot of time rehearsing and talking about the scene. Sometimes not. I would say 50% of the time we, we talk about it or get into it. And then he just figures out where to put the camera with Eve. Mm-hmm. And... Eve is a cinematographer, wonderful cinematography shot, like White Material and Humanité and all of Michelle's other movies, virtually all of them. And I had worked with Eve 20-something years ago on an ill-fated movie that through no fault of his own, but they weren't screening dailies, was shot entirely out of focus. Oh, no. And uh, this is a movie I spent like nine weeks doing. I played a schizophrenic, accused of killing his own daughter, but he just lost her at the mall. Oh, my God. And Maggie has a very small part in it because we just started dating. Wow. And so there was a problem with the film. So when Eve was attached to it, I actually was thrilled to work with Wait, him Wait, did this again. movie ever come out? They remade the movie. They got the uh, insurance money back. Okay. And um, because it was some problem with the camera that I don't know how. They got they – got, a lot of insurance money, and they went and made the movie again without me. Ah. Um, I don't remember if I said I didn't want to do it or if they said they didn't want me, but in any <laughs> case, obviously everybody was feeling pretty raw after nine weeks of shooting a movie that didn't work. Yeah. Um, so Damien Lewis actually did it, and I'm sure it's completely different, but it's called Keen. Okay. Is Maggie in it? No. Okay. <laughs> It'd be weird if they kept her, but not you. That would be really crazy. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, but you were excited to reunite, yes. Yeah, so like there was that connection. Everything seemed so kismet mm-hmm. that when I actually started doing it, it felt really easy, you know? It really felt entirely effortless playing this role. And I that that's usually a good sign for me. Yeah. You know, it's like my friends always say, like, wow, that looked really hard. That's it's never <laughs> It's never good. <laughs> what you're saying about the one take wonders, I don't know why. Because obviously, there's like, you know, late in the film, there's some really, really deeply emotional scenes where Jessica's really carrying a lot. And, you know, imagine doing one take of that is pretty overwhelming. Well, one take, one angle. Sure, sure, sure. Sometimes one take, to clarify. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking about very, like, basically the first time you meet your character where he's following her through the streets. And, like, there's so much focus on your body language. And it's just the introduction to the character. We don't know much about this guy. And the camera is you know, 50 feet away from you or something like that. I'm wondering what freedom that is, what pressure that is to like, to introduce yourself in that way. Yeah. Okay. We're talking about easy and hard. I would say the introduction of my character all the way up into when I get picked up by my brother, when I read the script, in addition to that little twist that happens, because before the twist happened, I was like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, <laughs> like when you're reading I the, the movie anyway because I love Michelle mm-hmm. but like I was less psyched um, the twist being that this character has early onset dementia no the twist oh. that um, what I'm accused of I see I see yeah, the conversation that, you have with her immediately after that oh uh, yeah on the like, log yeah um, which is a great scene but I yeah. could have been a different movie yeah um, I had to really come up with the whole story of why that 
happened the way it happened at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I've ever told anyone why, but I don't know, but I, I know exactly why. And when I watch it, I can read that that's what's, you know, mm-hmm. it may, might be a puzzle to people, but that's maybe the way it should be. Mm-hmm. But when I watch it, I go, oh, my intention is is showing. Uh-huh. Is that usually what happens for you when you watch something you've done? Yeah, to me, it's not totally important all the time that exactly what I intended is being projected and received by 100% of the audience. Mm-hmm. What is important is that I know what's going on. Yeah. Because in the end, the audience will kept the, catch like, you know, the tips of the iceberg mm-hmm. and sense the larger thing underneath. Yeah. And that's personally what I go to the movies to to see. And, and to then see you, just a you, little bit. Yeah. And you go like, you turn to the person next to you and you're like, why do you think he followed her home? Mm-hmm. Like in the beginning, you know? Yeah. Um, but instead of me telling anyone why I followed her home, I do think a very intuitive person could figure out why I followed her home. Yeah. Well, and like it gets you, it gives, let's the audience kind of be part of it in a way that they yeah. wouldn't get to be otherwise. When you were talking about when you saw Tammy Faye earlier and met, met Jessica, if I got my Oscar math correctly, like that's when The Lost Daughter's coming out of the same season, right? Uh-huh. And so yeah. I like you and Maggie are presumably on like, like running into Jessica and all of other people like over and over again at these things. And that process, from what I understand, is overwhelming. I didn't do the whole tour on The Lost okay. Daughter. You know, okay. I was just um, a lowly supporting actor on it. Um, <laughs> but I, I I did a fair amount of it. I, I actually, the main night that I saw Jessica was after I had gotten the part. Mm. We saw each other at the Academy Awards. Because, oh. of course, Maggie was nominated. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but I actually, after the Academy Awards at some party that we're both at, you know, she sort of had my vibe, I guess, which is like at a party. I think she likes to sort of sit in the corner and nurse a cocktail or or not. <laughs> and um, we just sat on the sofa and chatted. Probably mm. that was the first time we actually really chatted about the movie. When you came on the other side of even just being a supporting actor, you know, witness to that experience, I was thinking about that. And then you go to Venice and get an award and kind of wind up on really a similar stage that The Lost Daughter was on. Like, do you did you learn something from that process about what you do and don't want when a spotlight like that comes to you? I was calmer than I would have been. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, people have this uh, notion that actors are public speakers, mm. that actors could make politicians or, you know that were more than actors, you know, um, mm-hmm. there are some actors that are a lot more than actors. I'm not one of them. Mm. particularly. I've always felt like I really am suited for acting for better or worse. You know, I, I, I have also written a fair amount in my life, mm-hmm. but that requires a different type of discipline, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I'm a storyteller. Yeah. Uh, so when I got up to receive the Volpe Cup, for example, I had had an entire day where they told me to stay, you know, which is their code language for your winning an award. Yeah. Because um, it's not just, oh, stay another day. <laughs> you pay for, by the way. <laughs> you know, you have yeah, to... you guys didn't have a distributor. You didn't have someone to shell out cash for you. No, we didn't have a distributor until, like, not long ago. A couple months, yeah. Yeah, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I had an opportunity to really think about what I wanted to say. And I would actually say that speech is 
it was not easy for me to do. It's not like something I, I pine to do, but I took the opportunity to say some things that, you know, needed to be said, I thought. You talk about yourself better suited to acting, but also a storyteller. I mean, you, you've developed films in the past that I think you had an eye toward directing. You were, t- we were talking earlier about how you're musical in that way. I mean, mm-hmm. when you say best suited to being an actor, that doesn't mean you're not pursuing a bunch of other stuff at the same time, it sounds like. No, I am. And I I do write and I have an ambition to direct something one day. I had, I've had my eye on various things, but mm-hmm. I think directing for me is like getting a tattoo I think I would only ever get one and I would have to really think about what it was for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you describe the pull to direct? Like when you've had, you know, you've had this acting career that's really fulfilling, it's continuing to be fulfilling. What is the directing bug that keeps getting into your head? A specific story, you know, so there was recently, well, over the last two years, I've been trying to, it's complicated. It's sure. a very, been a very rough road <laughs> trying to get this thing done that would actually have no actors that you recognize in it and all sorts of other things like that in it. But it is a story that I'm dying to tell mm-hmm. and tell in this particular way. Yeah. And I think it would have an enormous impact if it were told in this particular way. Mm-hmm. But um, there are all kinds of things that are in the way of me doing it. So, and I've actually written most of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I don't mind. I, you know, for me, writing is like, has never had the urgency of acting. I think that's one of the problems. You mm-hmm. know, I, I write, I wrote yesterday. I, I'm somebody who enjoys doing it, but not like, like with the mania that I like acting. If I haven't acted in something that means something to me in not very long, I start getting like I need to do it. Mm-hmm. It's the way I express myself in every way. You know, I can, I feel most liberated when doing scenes. Yeah. Yeah. When you were um, talking to my colleague from Toronto, you were saying how like you start feeling like you've forgotten how to act if you're not on the set for a while. And yeah. I wonder like when you get back on a set, like what comes back? Like, is it like, you know, the Tin Man getting less rusty? Like how, to, how does that play out for you? I mean... Here's the thing I like. If I haven't acted a while and I'm going to act in something, either put the baby's dead scene first hmm. or the I'd like more cream in my coffee scene. Uh-huh. High I don't or like low. anything in between. I don't need like some long, if I'm the doctor describing what their symptoms of and their chances of recovery scene that goes, you know, it's two pages of that sort of thing. Yeah. Because I always feel shot out of a cannon mm-hmm. when I'm acting. Um, a lot of what I do as an actor is make myself calm enough to do it. Hmm. I would say that's like 80% of the work that I do is mm-hmm. just getting ready to do it. It reminds me of being an athlete. I was a soccer player and I would visualize not, you know, not exactly what I was going to do, but I would visualize playing soccer before I played it. Mm-hmm. And I would get like in the mood on game day and be peaking, you know, hopefully when I hit the field and ready to really, it required so much concentration to play the sport I played. So um, it feels like that. And, and acting feels like that to me. I'm looking to be, have that feeling with other actors that anyone could be thrown the ball at any moment. Mm-hmm. That even if it's, 
not your next line, it might be your next moment. We're all yeah, yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess when you're shooting a memory, a movie like memory where the camera is like really still and on you, like there's not a thing where like, well, it's on them. So I, I don't have to be on top of it. Like you're right there. Yeah. And, and at first I really struggled with the idea that the camera would be like a proscenium mm -hmm. and I was acting up on a stage cause I've done theater of course. Yeah. And I'm aware of like not turning up stage for my entire speech kind of thing. But in this movie, I also knew that it would benefit from me getting rid of a lot of that. There's actually an entire scene where I was aware that my head was chopped off at the top of the frame. <laughs> and um, Michelle was like, it's interesting. And I was like, I bet it is interesting watching somebody say they're sorry and not being able to see the head of the person that they're apologizing to. Well, I think there's also a shot where it's you know, the the daughter walks in on you in her bedroom and you're it's your entire naked body except for your head, I think, which is another. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> that's always a good look. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was very self-conscious of that type of stuff, mostly because so like six months before I was cast, I herniated a disc. Oh, God. And I'm somebody who normally exercises like crazy. I'm really like into feeling fit. Not mm -hmm. not a visual thing, but like I have to feel that way. And I felt like garbage during yeah. this time. And Michelle was like, just let it go. Hmm. Just like don't just like be a guy who doesn't work out. It wasn't it had to, like I said, it's that it doesn't have to do with like vanity so much as like I just felt bad mm -hmm. getting up, sitting down, moving around is difficult. I watched myself walking through the forest with her, going to the log, and I'm like I'm, I look like I can't walk that well. See, and I, I thought that was a character choice. I absolutely assumed that was just, like a well, walk you had built. Yeah. Everything is a character choice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actors talk about like gaining weight for a role or losing weight for a role. It's just for me, it's however I am mm -hmm. in every way. You know, if you could extend that to other things. Um, and I just go up oh, well this guy's really skinny because wow i've been running a lot and um <laughs> you know what i mean like i don't i don't try to make it be literal to yeah. the text you know like in this movie i told him i was like this guy could just as easily be totally fit mm -hmm. like all he's like he's in jail he's just doing jump roping and He's got all the time in the world. Maybe yeah. he do fitness. Yeah. Apparently not. <laughs> Does that approach to like what what you bring of yourself or your body or anything like that change as you've gotten older? Like, is there is there a point in your age where you there's things you are you aren't willing to do, things you do and don't want to bring? No, I mean I'm I'm willing to do anything, but I I am what I'm most what has changed is that now I'm like in my life I'm going this way. And it's and these are the kind of things I'm interested in. This is what I need to express. And if I get given a role, I go, is, is this an opportunity to express where I am? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I can take a couple of steps to the role, mm -hmm. but I want it to have something to do with me and where I'm at. It could be playing the elephant man. Mm -hmm. I mean, that might be where I am at exactly right now. Um, so it's, again, it's not like a literal thing. Mm -hmm. But I just look at it and go, like, is this going to enhance where I, and what I need to say, you know, my journey that I'm on? You work a lot. You, you make a lot of different movies, a lot of different roles. Like, it sounds, you 
must travel to the roles in some way, like because not all of these people are you in some way. Like there's there's a no. leaps of imagination happening there. Well, they are all aren't they are all <laughs> me and all not me. Um, no, like even John Lauder, when I go you know, from Boys Don't Cry, mm-hmm. wow, we can say names of movies, um, <laughs> right? Oh my god, <laughs> Boys Don't Cry, Boys Don't Cry, Boys Don't Cry, go see it, go see it, go see it, um, <laughs> go rent it wherever it's available. <laughs> yeah, no, that film was maybe the first time I ever felt the most agency to do mm. what I wanted to do. And it was because there was no power structure in the movie, right? Like all of us actors were equal. There was no hierarchy. Um, every idea felt equal. It was quite a company feel. Mm-hmm. You know, um, on other movies that I'd been on up to that point that had huge movie stars in them, which were many of my first movies, they seemed like they were in a artistic collaboration, mm-hmm. but I hadn't gotten to a place where I could participate in that yet. So yeah. I felt, yeah, Boys Don't Cry was the first time I, I think I was like, okay, I have an idea. <laughs> or not even that, because mostly I just act the idea. <laughs> you know? But so now that you're in the, in the veteran actor position, do you feel like you're able, able to kind of create that for the younger people that you're with, like that you necess- didn't necessarily have when you were starting? I mean, I would hope so. But like, it depends on the environment, to be honest. Yeah. There are some movies where you're just like, it's every man and woman for him and herself. Because <laughs> um, we're talking triage right now. <laughs> sure. I'm go say it myself. Sure. Um, and that happens. And, you know, yeah, I think I told actually a young actor came up to me recently and said, what is your advice? And I said um, something that I'm saying to myself a lot lately, which is, Talk to real people mm. in person, off your phone. Mm-hmm. Be interested in them. Yeah. Ask them questions. Learn about them. When they respond, don't have the next thing you're going to say in your head. Mm-hmm. Get used to interacting like that because that is the kind of thing that I really see that's missing a lot in, in our business. And um, like I said before, you know, that's the danger that AI would take the jobs where we're kind of already acting like AI. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this young generation, I've seen so many good actors coming up who do have that. And I'm like, fight for that. Mm -hmm. Become an expert at in-person. Get off the fucking phone. Fall in love in real time. Well, it's all stacked (laughs) against them. Like in that, I feel like generationally, like that it, it is so stacked toward digital for them, and like it, it takes more work than it did twenty years. But my ago. daughter and her friends are not like that. They've they've good for them. There there are some in that generation that are now rejecting mm-hmm. a lot of it, and um, you know, into like flea markets, <laughs> <laughs> into old shit, into you know, hanging out and talking. My yeah. My daughter actually was talking on the phone last night, which I've never seen her do. <laughs> and like having a long conversation on the phone. And I thought, oh, that's so great. Because this is also the generation that went through COVID. Yeah. And yeah. was very separated. So Absolutely. to have them come back and touch each other and, yeah. you know. They learned to appreciate it in a way they wouldn't necessarily have four years ago. Yeah. 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 Um, you talking about real people reminded me, I think also when you're talking to my 
colleague David about your family in Oklahoma and when they see your movies and when you want them to see the work that you do. And I think like you've made a lot of really teeny tiny movies that I think most people in Hollywood would be like, well, that's for the cities and like the people in the flyover states aren't going to do that. And like I'm from a red state, too. Like I feel like that's a that's a fallacy that people fall really easily into. So like what how do you hang on to that? How do you hang on to like really wanting to not necessarily like make something that will appeal to your family members who see two movies a year, but knowing that they can meet it there anyway. Why does that say important to you? Yeah, I think it actually doesn't even need to get directly to them to sort of move the needle, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I think um, typically things, social movements, whether they're artistic or having to do with uh, bettering society or something, do start where people are more densely populated and find their way down and out. And, you know, when I was a kid in Mississippi and I was there in the seventies and early eighties, it felt like the early Mm sixties. Right. So, um, and there's a beautiful aspect to that. And I, I long for it sometimes where Mm -hmm. you could just like not have to keep up with everything all the time. So maybe the film doesn't need to actually wind up, in West Point, Mississippi, where my dad's from, Mm -hmm. to have some impact on West Point, Mississippi. Now, this particular movie, Memory, I I mean, maybe I'm like really out of touch, but I think it probably would appeal to a large number of people. Mm -hmm. The question is whether or not they will get a chance to see it. It's not, there's nothing in it it's it's not that it plays safe. There just isn't anything in it that just isn't like human. You yeah. know, like who are you going to get angry at, or what message is in the movie that's a problem for everyone? I don't know. It seems life affirming to me, and that's why yeah. people get moved at the end because it is both a sad ending and a happy ending at the same time. Yeah, it is. It's really moving, and like that's a. Movies that can do that, that can give you that rush of feeling at the end of it. Um, those are really easy to tell people to go see, which I think is where you're yeah, going for here. I don't tell people to go see every movie that I have. <laughs> <laughs> Be like, do you want to, like, feel bad and feel a little bit like you're in school? <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. Don't go see that one. <laughs> this one, even though dementia is one of the parts of the movie, even though, like early trauma is a part of the movie. It's not like one of those movies that hangs its coat on that hanger. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really just, it's a love story that is, just is what it is. It's not an idealized love story. It's just a very simple one. That does it for today's show. We'll be back on Thursday to talk in so much more detail about the end of the SAG strike and what that means for award season. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on social media at VF Awards Insider, and you can find me around the internet at Katie Rich. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... 
whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 